Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our text for today, the Old Testament lesson, the 19th chapter of 1 Kings, these verses in particular. And Elijah went by himself a day's journey into the wilderness, and he came and he sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It's enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down... And he slept under a broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. This is our text, dear friends in Christ. It was Thomas Jefferson who once said, When you reach the end of your rope, tie a knot and hang on. It's kind of a catchy witticism. But when you reach the end of your rope and you simply don't have the strength to hang on, you simply don't have the stamina to hang on anymore, to tie a rope and to hang on, then what do you do, Tom? Then what do you do? That's the sense of desperation that was described by another man named Herbert Barks, who once wrote, What's beyond the end of the rope? When the bottom is reached and your rope has run out and the emotions are drained, and life's perspective is lost. What's beyond the end of your rope? Another day comes, he says, wanted to or not. Another day comes in a quiet, lonely room with no one to share your breakfast. Another day comes in your oiled walnut office where decisions are expected even though your rope has long since run out. Another day comes in marriages where words stand silent in the corner. What's beyond the end of your rope? No more rope. And God turns his globe round and round, and we have another day. Bach's description of depression. And so often what comes to people is most depressing in itself, isn't it? But there are those days that people have that are like that, days when people feel that their end has come and that they're at the end of their rope and they simply need to let go because they're so tired of hanging on. People feel that way from time to time. And sadly, there are some people who feel that way most of the time. Perhaps it's due to stress or to work-related problems or to family-related problems or through some physiological disorder that they have or through some chemical imbalance in their bodies or their brains. Or it might be significant losses in their lives that require them to make changes that they'd rather not have to make. And they feel like they're at that, what someone described as that space between trapezes. When there's nothing to hang on to and you only hope that something is coming from the other side that you can eventually swing on. It's not a feeling that's new to us in our generation, as though others hadn't experienced it before. No, it's been there ever since the fall of Adam and Eve into sin. It's been there since it became a part of our nature because of sin and you have been and you will be there if you haven't been there in life because you're a sinner no different from all the rest of us a sinner living with other sinners in a sin-ridden world we're in the world and the prince of the world and our old sinful self within us as paul talks about in today's epistle lesson wears us out and wears us down and then finally has us doing those very things that the evil one gives us, as St. Paul says, opportunity to do. 
Look at Elijah, for example, in our text for today. In that Old Testament lesson, sleeping in the wilderness beneath a broom tree, a broom tree which spread out a good distance. It's actually more of a shrub, more of a bush than it is a tree, growing to 10, 12, 15 feet tall, spreading out an equal distance, providing shelter at night from the wind, providing shelter from the sun during the day. And there Elijah is underneath his broom tree, sleeping in a dire strait of depression. And it's not simply because he's tired. It's not simply because he's physically worn out from the journey in the wilderness. That would be a normal kind of a rest and sleep. Elijah was sleeping the sleep of the depressed. He was at the end of his rope. He was sleeping that sleep from which you'd rather not awake, sleeping that sleep wherein, wherein your mind is free for at least a few hours of time from whatever fear it is that torments you during your conscious hours. What fear could possibly be tormenting Elijah? After all, this is a prophet of God who had been in so many challenges with which he'd been confronted, a successful prophet in so many ways. The most recent success being a royal challenge that had been leveled against him, a head-on confrontation with the king of Israel named Ahab and his wicked wife named Jezebel. And Ahab at his wife's persistent prodding had personally fallen to gross idolatry worshiping one of the local deities whose moral and spiritual restraints and restrictions were much more to Jezebel's liking than the moral and the religious absolutes of Israel's God. And so turning their backs on the God of their fathers, they turned their faces toward this popular God of the age as people so often do, one far more tolerant of those who have, as St. Paul wrote in the epistle lesson for today, become callous and given themselves up to sensuality in which they are greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And Paul intentionally leaves a, a lot to the imagination there. What then? To set things straight, God orders Elijah to challenge the 450 prophets of Baal to a contest. This would be a duel of deities, some would think. Not much of a challenge for God because there are no other deities, but a real challenge for his prophet who was but one standing against 450 prophets of Baal. Here they are, 450 against the one, a bit outnumbered, you'd say. But commanded by God, who is not impressed by numbers, and remembering outnumbered saints before him who had conquered figures bigger than that, who had conquered giants bigger than his, men like Abraham, who with 318 men defeated the armies of kings, men like Moses, who lifting up his arms over the Red Sea, conquered a whole army of thousands that belonged to the Pharaoh, or Gideon, whose army God streamlined from tens of thousands down finally to 300 with which he conquered the Midianites, and of course there was David who brought down a giant in his army with a stone instead of with 10,000 arrows. With a God like this on your side, who needs numbers? And so Elijah, the lone prophet of God, stands alone against these 450 prophets of Baal that had gathered together on Mount Carmel. 
450 of them crying out to Baal, Scripture tells us, from early morning until noon, trying to get Baal's attention, who, of course, because he is not, would not hear them. And then from noon to evening, to try to get Baal to hear them and to respond, they cry out ceremoniously, and they go ceremoniously about the altar, cutting themselves with swords and with lances, Scripture tells us. But Scripture says there was no voice and no one answered. And then Elijah said to the people, Come near unto me. And the people did. And he ordered the rebuilding of the altar that these prophets of Baal in their frenzied madness had all but destroyed. And the sacrifice on the altar was placed there and water was poured over it. Not once, not twice, but three times the water falling down into trenches that Elijah had been ordered to be dug around that altar, flowing into the trenches more water than would be needed. And then calmly, with dignity, with confidence, Elijah stepped up before the altar and he simply prayed, Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that thou art God. And scripture says, then the fire of the Lord fell from heaven and, conquered the, uh, and consumed the burnt offering and consumed the wood and the stones and the dust and it even licked up the water that was in the trenches. Now one would have thought, as Elijah did, that seeing this indisputable demonstration of God's power, one would think that the, the people at the time would have regained their senses, that they would have enthusiastically followed Elijah and Elijah's God, but they didn't. At first they were impressed, but it wasn't long before their fickleness and faithlessness and the, found it more convenient to once again follow the social and the religious, the civic religion of their day. Instead of following the true God that has been revealed to them by Elijah. Disgusted with the people, backed into a corner, fearful of the revenging wrath of the king and the queen, Elijah becomes depressed. It seemed that the Lord had led him into a time of crisis, and then to the crest of success, and then suddenly, without warning, dropped him and deserted him to failure. He felt alone. He felt Abandoned, frustrated, afraid, betrayed, he hated life, he begged indeed for death, as we can see. And then, as those greatly depressed often do, Elijah sought to become a recluse, running away from his problem, running away from people, determined to even try to run away from God, who he felt had left him down. And carrying himself into the wilderness, he took his mind and his heart into hiding, and he became a prisoner of himself. And he slumped into the silence of his soul where he nursed his depression with self-pity and he wanted only to sleep his life away. He felt he was at the end of his rope and he wanted only one thing, to die and to be left alone. And so he prayed, Lord, I've had enough. Take away my life for I'm no good. Anyone who's been there and who has safely come back from the depth of that kind of depression knows how terrible and horrifying the feeling of it all can be. It's like being disconnected from everyone around you so that you're physically there but no one seems to even notice that you're there anymore. It's being so emotionally disjointed 
that it seems that you're totally out of place in the world, that you're a misfit, that you're a mistake, that you're unwanted, floating around unnoticed, perhaps Perhaps, indeed, those that have been there without knowing it have had a glimpse of what hell is like. The eternal separation from everything that makes us feel like anything, the sin-caused separation from God where souls beg to non-exist rather than to exist eternally and be depressed. Elijah was in that state of deep depression. He was at the end of his rope. He was ready to drop off. But friends, that's not where God would have his people be, and that's not where God would leave his people when they're there. Elijah sinfully had given up on himself. Elijah sinfully had given up on God. But God was not about to give up on Elijah. And there underneath the juniper tree, an angel of God suddenly appears into Elijah in this horrible state, into the silent solitude of his depression, commanding him with a a voice startling him from his sleep and saying, Arise, wake up. Arise and eat. Too depressed to resist, he half-heartedly ate what was set before him, and then he rolled over, intending to sleep again. But this time the angel physically comes over and he touches him and he grabs him and he gets him up and he says, no, arise now and eat, otherwise the journey will be too great for you. And Elijah thinks to himself, journey? What do you mean journey? I haven't come here to take a trip, I've come here to die. You see God, through then that agent, that angel was prompting, pushing, prodding this man who was at the end of his rope determined to give up. He wasn't about to spoon-feed him while he lay hopelessly on his back. He got him up and he moved him on until days later he came to a cave at the top of the mountain where finally he began talking to God. And he told the Lord of his feelings and he told the Lord of his troubles and God listened. And then the most fascinating thing of this whole account transpires God himself comes to strengthen him. The angel led him to the Lord at the mountaintop, and then God himself came to strengthen him, not as he had come earlier with the 450 prophets of Baal, not as Elijah perhaps would want him to come with power or consuming fire. He comes to his depressed prophet in a small and a still and a gentle voice, and in that time and place. He delivers him from the hell of his own depression and he sets his feet on a new course in life and Elijah went forth a new man confident that God still had all things under control and that God indeed always would. God has done and God will always do the same thing for each one of you. When we've had it with life, when we've reached the end of our rope, when we find ourselves feeling the depression of hell, if you will, to which our sins would gladly lead us. He sends someone to prod us and to lift us up on our feet again and to move us on, pushing us on forward so that we stay awake long enough to hear that small and that still and that gentle voice of Jesus saying, I have come that you may have life and that you might have it abundantly. I have come 
And there on the cross it is most amply indicated and shown and manifested that you may have life and that you may have it abundantly of Jesus who died there upon that cross that we might have abundant life, that the abundance of our sins might be lifted from us and the abundance of his life might be given to us so that we then can move forward toward that goal to which he's called us because he's told us that nothing can separate us from his love, neither life nor death nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come, nothing unless I repeatedly refuse to hear that still small voice of God and the promises of my Lord Jesus Christ. For you see, just as the angel sent a miracle bread before Elijah, bread that gave him strength to go on for 40 days and for 40 nights to Mount Horeb, the mountain of God, so God's messengers today set before you week in and week out, as we've heard in the past weeks in the Gospel readings, the bread of life. Week after week, the bread of life set before you as pilgrims journeying here on your homeward way. And the messengers of God setting before you that bread of life, the Lord Jesus Christ, that you might finally come to that same mountaintop and hear the Lord Jesus say to you, Come, thou blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And so when you feel at your rope's end, when you feel too tired and wearied to go on, don't expect God to come to your aid with brute force. Don't expect him to come with a consuming fire as he came to the prophets of Baal. He has not promised to come with brute force or with consuming fire in our day. But he has promised to come with the sound of gentle stillness even as he came to Elijah in his wilderness depression, even as he came to the virgin mother of our Lord as a gentle baby in Bethlehem, or to the fisherman of Galilee as a gentle man who went out of his way to make the desperate people smile again with life and the dying to live again, or to the lost sheep of Israel that he might gather them together as we've heard in weeks past unto himself, or as he went to Calvary, in his gentleness, to make the guilty guiltless and the sinner sinless, not with the loud sounds of a rebelling man, but rather with the silence of a sheep that was on his way to the slaughter. And so also our Lord Jesus comes today, even now, with the sound of gentle stillness through his word and his sacraments. In the sounds of this hour, he comes in the sounds and the stillness of water flowing over a child's head in baptism, as you saw earlier on. He comes in the stillness of bread and wine, passing over a sinner's lips in his holy supper with his very body and blood, as will happen at the next service today. There Christ is. Even there in his holy supper, as the old German hymn put it, Verbogen in Brod so klein, hidden in bread so small. But that's where Christ comes to us today, hidden in these smaller and gentler ways. But make no mistake about it. In that gentle stillness in which God comes to us is indeed all the strength and the power of God.
So when you're at your rope's end, don't despair. Don't despair because you have that promise from God that Christ is right there with you at your rope's end. And where your rope ends, there, as someone has said, the hem of Christ's garment has only begun. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.